This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Richard Mao. He is president of Fuller Theological Seminary. I spoke with him on September 8, 2010, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of KPCC in Pasadena, California. This interview is included in our program, Restoring Political Civility, an Evangelical View. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Okay, you're ready to go here. And here's your headphones. Okay. And here's your volume for the headphones is right here. Okay. Good. And they should be there. Can I just talk to them? Okay. Hi, Rich. Do you have your headphones on? Hi, Richard Mao here. Hi, it's Krista. Hey, Krista. <laughs> Good to hear your voice. You too. Gee, it's been a long time. I know. Seems like You've I... gotten uh, much more famous since <laughs> I talked to you last. I'm totally See. different. Ontologically changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got an ontological... Uh, uh, I've got an ontological uh, name. <laughs> yeah, you're getting into being. Gee. That's right. And so. here I've been... Big, I'm, I'm all into becoming, and here you're into being. It's just uh, Parmenides versus Heraclitus. Uh, yeah, so. and you are you are going to be one of our first being shows, which I think is great. Hey, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. What's the... Uh, are, is, is this uh, being, uh, as the Catholics would say, is it getting uh, reception? Well, uh, yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, one thing that we heard as we made this decision from, from people who are know about renaming and rebranding is that when you rename anything, um, you never come out the chute and everybody says, wow, that's great. Yeah. Right, because changing something is always stressful, even for people yep. who didn't like the other name. So, I mean, we yeah. are, you know, we're getting a lot of reaction. I mean, we're, we've gotten plenty of positive reaction, <clears throat> but it's it's more the exercise is more that we have to live into it. And also, I think that people just have to hear that it's the same show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in fact, it, it's not. It, as we as we say, this is a place we've come to. Um, it's how and. it's what the program has become. It's and it's uh, you know Craig Dykstra ex- actually was really helpful for me when I was first talking about this and um, yeah. he said I mean he had his reservations but he said you know I see what you're pointing at is a conversational ethos rather than a topic area yeah. and I thought that was really helpful because that is what we've done we've we don't talk we don't speaking of faith is not talking about something that happens for an hour on Sunday right or in particular yeah. places we just talk about how. These convictions and questions and ideas and virtues, how they run through everything we do. Yeah, and right. um, so I, I think people have to see that. But you know, there is the, the other interesting thing. I'll just tell you, and then obviously I'm going to interview you. But uh, I, I was at Harvard Divinity School back in the spring, and they were having a real. Oh, I saw the. I, I get the bulletin, you and I saw bulletin. all about that. Yeah. So they were. You know, one of the the discussion we had there was so interesting where these the, – because that was about the future of progressive Christianity. Yeah. And one of the things I ended up saying to them, which, you know, they uh, to different degrees already intuitively knew, is that the words we – the words that say that progressive Christians – and I mean, I think a lot of religious people used to describe themselves – aren't the shorthand that we think they are, Right. And that no, progressive, right. you know, for people who are in that world, it's so meaningful. Even words like justice and peace, <laughs> right? Yeah. They don't yeah. they don't carry water. They they nope. they're controversial in their weird ways. Nope. And uh, and I think 
and I've I've had this conversation. You know, I've, I've gotten reactions from people like Martin Marty and Craig, and you know, people who feel sad that faith is freighted, but who also get it. And yeah. and I yep. feel like this is a good and really healthy conversation to have because letting go of the words may mean that we have to communicate much better, right? More vividly. Exactly. Um, so, and exactly. I, I said to some people, this is, you know, it's showing, not telling, which is yeah. very much about what you and I are going to talk about. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, think, I think it's exciting and it's a little scary, but I, I needed a new challenge. So yeah. <laughs> I uh, got one. <laughs> I'm excited for you. I I'm really glad. am. I've just been so... Uh, so pleased and proud oh, uh, well, for what you're doing. Well, it's thank just, it's you. just amazing. It meant yeah. so much to me when you wrote back and just said you would give it your blessing. So, <laughs> <laughs> And you got a new book out, huh? Oh, the, the Einstein's Einstein? God book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've already, yeah. that's one, that's like my child that's graduated and gone to college and I don't think about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. It, yeah, you know, it's been out. It came out in the spring. But it's, yeah, I, that's, that's been fun, too. Yeah, because yeah. that whole that science science religion conversation is another oh, place. Oh man, got. I tell you, it's uh, it it's going to be huge for all of us. I mean, there's yeah. so much new stuff uh, yeah. going on. I just just read this morning a long piece that from an evangelical school by a theologian saying that uh, the whole genetics thing raises real questions about the idea of. Uh, an original Garden of Eden. I mean, no matter how mm. you spin that historically, mm. you know, that uh, the continuity of uh, the genetic continuity between non-human and human species and all of that, you know, fang and blood and, and right. all that stuff. Uh, and, you know, it, it just it's fascinating stuff to think about. But, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and then obviously the technological side of it with, uh, you know, genetic research and the biotech stuff and all the rest, yeah. uh, the, the whole range of things is so huge. I know. Yeah. I really think that um, science is going to throw out the big theological questions in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah, well, like Hawking already did that. You yeah, know, he did. With, with this new thing. She, yeah. yeah. And the way some people are just jumping on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. How, how's your family? How you? Oh, my family's so good. My, my daughter yeah. is 16. Yeah. And she's just great. She's, you know, it's so interesting when your children get to be this age that you just learn who they are, right? They yeah. they have yeah. their inner lives and their personalities and What's she interested in? What's the... She's artistic. She's at a performing arts high school. She writes songs. Wow. She's a real free spirit. Um <laughs> she's really different from me and I have to <laughs> keep up with how she thinks and how she thinks about her future, but she's she's just great, and she's a really good person. Has she chosen a college yet? No, and she's not ambitious, and she, you know, that's a long way away for her. Yeah, <laughs> two yeah, years, yeah, but yeah. I say it's yeah. not. And nah. she's she's great. She, I don't know what she's how she's going to be. I'm going to have to be pushing her in about a year. She's going to she's a junior now. She just started, yeah. so. Um, but she's very she's she's a really interesting person. My son is twelve, and he's. Incredibly athletic and energetic and all boy. (laughs) He's playing hockey. (laughs) Oh, good. But he's also just a really good person. So I'm having fun with him. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, well, we need to catch up sometime in person, but I guess we have to. Yeah, yeah, we sure do. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) All right. So, Chris, are we we okay? All right. So, um, you know, I'm not going to ask you to tell your 
your story again, though I love it so much. But we've, I've heard it before, and I'll be able to introduce you to people. But I just, I just thought maybe where I'd start is uh, in, your, in your childhood. I mean, we've talked about your uh, Christian upbringing um, in a, a fundamentalist culture and, you know, in an, in an earlier day of radio preachers. Um, I wonder if you catch your mind back, um, th- this thing you now call civility. Um, yeah. How, what, how do you see it uh, in, that, in that world you grew up in? Yeah, right. Well, that's a great question. Well, you know, basically, uh, the kind of evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity that formed me early on uh, had a very strong streak of incivility. You know? mm. uh, we were people that uh, uh, we, we not only had enemies, but we felt that it was essential to our our spiritual identity that we have enemies, you know? Right, because it was about you, defining yourselves over against. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been thinking about this lately in terms of uh, the, the Pope going to Scotland. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian denomination to which I belong. Uh, they revised it. They put it all on a footnote. But that Westminster Confession of the Reformation era uh, says that the Pope is the Antichrist. Yeah. And uh, I was raised in a world in which it was important to look out for the Antichrist, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, uh, I've actually, I, I can sort of divide my life up into uh, anti- Antichrist uh, segments, you know. <laughs> Early on, it, it was Catholicism. I mean, you know, that number in the no. Book of Revelation, the number of the beast, 666. People had this wild stuff. Uh, am I going on too long? By no, the way? no, no. That's good. Yeah. And you know, I, my grandfather also believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. So yeah. I know that well, you know, there was uh, there was apparently some kind of uh, number on uh, associated with the papal chair or something like that, or or some Latin phrase, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And if you assign the appropriate numbers, you would find out that it all added up to six hundred and sixty-six. You know, and that proved that the the Pope was the Antichrist. And then uh, really Vatican II kind of made it more and more difficult. Uh, And uh, really into the 50s, you got uh, a very strong anti-communism with uh, Joe McCarthy and and the like. And and pretty soon it was Stalin, you know. So you're saying uh, the the Antichrist has changed across your lifetime. Yep. yep. and, uh, and, And so we hated communists. And I noticed right around 1980 that it began to shift to Islam. Hmm. Really? And that early? Getting, yeah, and you're getting a lot of, uh, uh, today, you know, overtly, overtly yeah. anti, anti-Muslim anti stuff. And uh, it's almost as if we, we, we've always got to have somebody that we, we, we feel legitimate uh, about really hating. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that that's, I think, intrinsic to the kind of... Uh, fundamentalist Christianity uh, with conspiracy theories and antichrists and beasts and all the rest. And, and so, you know, to, to all of a sudden start thinking about civility and uh, uh, not allowing yourself to get into that kind of thing has been a kind of a shift for me spiritually. Right. Now, when you first wrote um, Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility yeah. in an Uncivil World, that was at the end of the 80s. Is that right? Yeah, it was really around 90 that I was writing uh-huh. it. Yeah. 
So yeah. what were you looking at and responding to at that time? Yeah. Yeah, well, as I say in the new edition to the book, I, you know, I was focusing then on on the really big struggles in the world. You know, Northern Ireland, you know, Catholic versus Protestant, and the role that religion had. Right, uh, right. So Catholic versus Protestant in Northern Ireland, uh, Arab versus Jew in the Middle East, uh, Christian versus Muslim in uh, places like uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and, and the like, and, and the ways in which religion... Including the Christian religion, um, seemed to uh, stoke the fires of hatred and 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 hostility and and violence and and the like. And so that's really the the big stuff that I was thinking about at the time. Even though I certainly attended to, you know, some of the the more uh, down to earth things. But uh, you know, as I've as I've thought about the revising that book and people have said to me you know you got to get to uh, uh the 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 present day where yeah. it's it uh, and of course northern ireland is not so much in the news anymore the middle east is certainly there but eastern europe is kind of quieted down in terms of uh, christians and muslims killing each other there right. uh but uh you know as i've told the story that within a few weeks after my book came out i got calls from uh Two major newspapers in the East, uh, independently, uh, two writers working on the whole t- topic of civility, and they wanted to talk about parking lots and uh, California freeways and uh, rudeness in the aisles of uh, of supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And I think what we have seen uh, is a a, a gradual. Uh, domestication of that kind of uh, uh, horrible incivility that we saw on the macro level. Mm. Uh, and now it's uh, settled in even into uh, the United States Congress. And, uh, right. And, yes. and obvi- obviously stimulated and reinforced a lot by 24-7 cable news where uh, they almost uh, uh, seem to survive on a lot of incivility. I mean, mm. they, yeah. You know, you you quote a line, a couple of lines of Yeats, which maybe this is a, a a kind of an extreme version, but it certainly is a way that it looks. It can look, looking at this issue of incivility, um, the the lines are: "The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity." Yeah. And then you you t- you take a phrase that Martin Marty coined that that what we need is convicted civility. Yeah. And that's really a thesis that you've carried forward and developed. So I don't know what you what you mean by convicted civility. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think if um, as somebody who's been working at a lot of issues of uh, Christianity and culture and Christian engagement with the, the larger world, that's, uh, that's a phrase that uh, even though I got it from Martin Marty, <laughs> it's sort of become... My, part of my branding, you right, know, right. people attribute it to me. <laughs> yes. But uh, the larger context there was that Marty said, you know, it, 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 this is a book he wrote back in the 80s or so. He said, uh, a lot of people today who have strong convictions are not very civil. And a lot of people who are civil don't have very strong convictions. Right. And what we really need is convicted civility. And it's that, you know, how do we... Uh, look at people with whom we have real disagreements, uh, serious disagreements, and at the same time uh, treat them 
You know, the biblical term, there are two wonderful uh, terms there uh, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah says, uh, uh, seek the shalom, the, the welfare, it's usually translated, but seek the shalom of the city in which you are, mm. God has placed you. Mm. And uh, uh, because in its shalom, you will find your shalom. And, and how, do we, how do we look at uh, what was in that context? You know, Hebrew people in exile, uh, uh, trying to figure out how in the world they're going to relate to a pagan culture. And then God says, seek their shalom, seek mm-hmm. their well-being. Uh, and, you know, even if you disagree radically with them. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says uh, that we have to honor all human beings and uh, have a have a regard for their well-being. And And I take those to be sort of different ways of getting at a very common biblical theme. What does it mean for me to honor the Muslim, to honor the Mormon, to honor uh, people of uh, of unbelief who are hostile toward Christianity? What does it mean to to honor them? And then I think we need to work at the, the theology there. You know, how do we view other people? So, you know, I want to just test something out on you that I've thought about a lot over the years, that as... Uh, American culture started to become genuinely pluralistic in the, around the 1960s. Um, the virtue that was put forward, the civic virtue that, that was started to be, we started to learn and educate uh, into our children was the virtue of tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that, that for religious people, for, for all kinds of religious people, tolerance is not nearly a big enough word. No, it's not. It's, it's a cerebral word. I mean, yeah. it, to me, it doesn't stretch to compassion, to honoring, you know, right. as you just said. That's and right. I, so I've wondered if, if we, you know, what, that we have to, we've, we've lived now a few, just really a few decades. I mean, it's a pretty short period of time. And of course, now globalization has happened. So it's all opened up. But that we really are now at the beginning of learning what those virtues are that we need for our common life. And that maybe, yeah. in fact, religious people, right, theology should have a very rich role to play in that. Ah, that's really great. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the tolerance, toleration, you know, you say, well, you know, my neighbor next door practices her tuba every day for two hours and I get sick of it, but I tolerate it. You right. Know? Well, tolerate there is just means you, you don't, you don't tell her how angry you are. Right, her, and the medical know? term tolerance is like how much can you take before you get sick or you have a bad reaction, <laughs> right. which is exactly actually right. the way it's functioned. Right. Uh-huh. But uh, what I've tried to do with civility, uh, and, and it really gets to uh, – it's a part – it, it has to do with the virtues. I, I'm glad you used that term because, you know, to be civil, it comes from civitas, uh, and it means learning how to live in the city. And, uh, hmm. Back to that know, the origin. Yeah, the, hmm. the origin with a guy like Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, who said, you know, we, early on, as, as, as little children, uh, we, 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 we have a natural uh, sense of kinship. Uh, we, we have strong, positive mm-hmm. feelings toward uh, those who are blood relatives, our mother, my father, uh, sisters and brothers, cousins and the like. And then as we grow up, uh, we, we have some of those same positive feelings that develop toward friends. And so we go from uh, kinship and we build on that to a broader sense of friendship where you have that same sense of bonding or something like it 
that, that isn't just based on blood relative stuff. But he said to really grow up, to be a mature human being, is to uh, learn in the public square to have that same sense of bonding to people from other cities, pe- people who are very different than yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that, that's not just toleration, but it's a, a sense that what I owe to my mother because she brought me into this world, what I owe to my friends because of shared uh, experiences and memories and, uh, and, and delights, uh, I also owe to the stranger. And that's more than toleration. It's uh, uh, extending the kinship-friendship thing uh, even further to other people. Why? Because they're human like me. And I've got to begin to think of humanness as such, as a a kind of bonding uh, relationship. So what you just said is so powerful. And then... At the same time, I'm, I'm not telling you anything new. I mean, you are an evangelical educator, philosopher, leader. Um, and you also know that, that evangelical uh, Christians and, and other, some other forms of Christianity have been very closely associated with incivility in recent yep. years, especially in American political life. Now, that's, it's not the whole story of evangelical Christianity or Christianity, but, but that, that association is undeniable. Um, and I, so, so partly what I want to do is, uh, I, I want to uh, try to get a get a big uh, your sense of the big picture here. Um, so not just w- what the connection is, but take that apart a little bit. You know, so, so yeah, let me yeah. just I don't, I don't know exactly. Here, here's what I want to ask you. So, I, I would say right now, as you and I are speaking, um, a lot of Americans may have the sense uh, again anew. Over the last that, over, uh, from these last few decades, that that there are some really vitriolic and and damaging religious sentiments and voices um, that are, that have become very vocal in our public life. Now, yeah. um, and I want to know what you think this does and doesn't have to do with the evolution of evangelical Christianity in public life. So you know, yeah. we've talked about this a lot on this program in the last few years. In the early 20th century, in fact, it was even the people we would today call evangelical Christians who pretty much withdrew from public life and yeah. said, we will care about private morality and, and, and personal salvation. At the end of the 20th century, um, evangelical Christians uh, reemerged in, in public life and, and in electoral political life. President Bush was in office for eight years at the beginning, which was maybe the apex of that development. And then I think a lot of people felt like evangelicals got pretty quiet in the last couple of years. And then there is this surge of, I don't know, Tea Party, Glenn Beck, anti-Islamic sentiment um, that often has religious overtones. And so I just want to ask you, is this a new, from your vantage point, is this a new stage in the life of evangelical Christianity in the U.S.? Or you know, how would you describe this as part of the big picture? Yeah, thanks. Now, see, I think that evangelicalism constantly goes back and forth, not only from uh, between uh, uh, sort of alienation from the culture to a kind of takeover mentality, hmm. uh, but to back and forth between two sort of theologies uh, that bear on that. Uh, all of those decades in the 20th century when evangelicals said, you know, we're, this world is not our home. Uh, 
We're bound for right, heaven, right. and our our main job is to get other individuals saved so that they can go to heaven with us, and and uh, to try to change society is like trying to uh, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, this is a a sinking ship. Uh, there was that 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 was undergirded by an apocalyptic theology, a theology that the world is getting worse and worse. And also that was the early 20th century. You had world wars. You had global economic depression, right? I mean, there were reasons to look around and say that. Yeah, but but also a tremendous sense of loss. I mean, evangelicalism Mm. in the 19th century, uh, for a good part of the 19th century, was the American uh, religion, Mm. Uh, you know. uh, Right. Oh, beauty! You know, God bless America. Oh, beautiful for sacred dreams and all this stuff. And uh, but as George Marsden, the historian, pointed out, that uh, going from the 19th to the 20th century for many evangelicals was like an immigration experience. They'd gone into a, <laughs> it, it was a, it was a spiritual immigration. Suddenly, they looked around and said, "They've taken away my nation, and I do not know where they have laid it." You know, <laughs> and uh, it was suddenly a strange country that we were in. Uh, we no longer felt at home here. Uh, but something happened around 1980, and, you know, you can go back and look at Anita Bryant and uh, mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell and all that. Moral something happened around. Christian yeah. Coalition. And that was the, now that, right there, you know, the very interesting thing. <laughs> what, what for, for 80 years, they had seen themselves as a moral minority on the edges of culture, <laughs> waiting for the whole thing to blow up. And suddenly, in 1980, they announced that they are the moral majority. I mean, what went on there? Mm. And uh, I I think, for one thing, there was a class shift. Uh, uh, My wife and I were traveling across the country one time, and somebody asked Phyllis to uh, take pictures of churches along the way for a kind of dictionary of American Christianity. And so we'd be going across Highway 80 in Nebraska, and we'd get off the road and go into this little town. And and it, typically it went like this, that the Presbyterian and Methodist Episcopal churches were at the center of town. And then over across the tracks, uh, there was a, a Pentecostal, a little kind of shack type church, yeah. you know, or a Nazarene church. Well, today, those churches own the best real estate in town. Right, you know? right. And, uh, and they have brand new big are, buildings. <laughs> yeah, and, uh-huh. and they are the mega churches. And we've seen this tremendous decline of... Uh, of mainline Protestantism. And so evangelicals suddenly around 1980 were feeling a new leverage, a new cultural power. And uh, they were very upset about the sexual revolution and uh, what that was doing to what their children were being taught in schools and what they were seeing on local magazine rack displays in the local grocery store and and all the rest. And uh, uh, they, they 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 suddenly decided we're going to take this country back, right. and uh, and then uh, there was a lot of disillusionment with that. Uh, you know, Falwell died, and Pat Robertson made some really uh, strange <laughs> uh, strange pronouncements, and there was a lot of embarrassment with Ted Haggard and and others, and there was a kind of uh, quieting. But somehow, uh, you know, the Glenn Beck phenomenon and uh, some other things have. Uh, and the anti-Islam stuff yeah, has yeah. Uh, has revived that sense that uh, they're, they're taking something away from us and we got to get it back. And uh, and especially the shift from the Bush administration to the Obama administration seems to have had a lot to do with that. And Glenn Beck, of course, is Mormon, <laughs> but he sounds like yeah. an evangelical. <laughs> I know, I know. 
uh, Richard Land, who uh, well, yes, isn't, and Southern uh, Baptist, yeah, yeah, he isn't uh, usually very, very uh, generous with uh, mm-hmm. theological or spiritual assessments of people who aren't Southern Baptists. Uh, said that he heard uh, Glenn Beck at the Washington rally and came away with the impression that he had sounded a lot like Billy Graham, you know, which is really quite a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think one one element here that feels very dramatic and troubling to a lot of people watching this is um, it, it's not just conviction, right? And it's not just, as you say, there were people who emerged and and they had a big constituency saying there are issues we care about and we're going to and they were in fact very smart with in the with the electoral uh in, in electoral politics in mobilizing and galvanizing yeah but there's a sense in which the issues that are being taken up now and the spirit in which they're being taken up now pl- plays fast and loose with the truth yeah yeah, and this, so where this do, is you know, what, where does where does that how do you see that? And you're an evangelical Christian. I mean, if, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Well, I mean, you know, you're getting at something that I'm just really deeply disturbed about with evangelical Christians. And I'll give you an example that uh, I use in the revised, expanded version of my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm listening to this uh, guy talk about Mormonism, and. Uh, he, he says all kinds of things about Mormons that if 12 years of uh, rather uh, extensive dialogue with Mormon scholars and Mormon leaders, I just know those things aren't true or they're not, they're not accurate. And so I went up to him afterward and I said, you know, yeah, some things right, but, you know, there are some other things that you, you really need to um, take, a, take another look at Mormonism. And he said, oh, you... You know, intellectuals, you're always trying to make all these distinctions. Our job is to battle for the truth, and we don't have time right. uh, for all these niceties, you know. And here's the thing. He's talking about battling for the truth and willing to tell untruths <laughs> in, in the battle right. for truth, which is the strangest thing. And, and what, this, what this really gets at, Krista, is that, that for, for, for Christians who take the Bible seriously— it isn't that we have these convictions and then we also got to try to be civil. But but the truth element of civility is itself one of the convictions. You know? I mean, if our conviction, if our repertoire of convictions includes this, that God tells us we must not bear false witness against our neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, then how can we be so fast and easy with uh, and loose with uh, – with with telling the truth about others, uh, making these blanket statements about Muslims. I mean, I, you and I know Muslims who do not fit any of the stereotypical caricaturing kind of claims that are being uh, used these days. Mm-hmm. And yet people think nothing of just saying, you know, the Quran is an evil book and anybody who uh, who's right. devoted to the Quran uh, is, is just an evil person. And we want a billion just, people. Yeah. Y- yep, yep. So and you know here so another example of something that's come up is the civil rights civil rights right the civil rights movement I mean and that's that, that's history that you were part of um, and, and there were lots of Christians white Christians as well as black Christians who were right in the middle of that movement and then there's this uh, Christian tinged um, kind of rewriting of it 
you know, yeah. taking it back yeah. when in fact, <laughs> when in fact Christianity was right at the center of it, including evangelicalism. Right. You were there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of very frustrating <laughs> uh, confusions and distortions in, in all of that because uh, uh, we, we Christians and especially evangelical Christians, uh, one of the great one of the great blots on our record is that uh, we really did not get with the civil rights struggle in any any serious way uh, on the whole. I mean, there were some who did. Uh, and suddenly to be righteously claiming that and then identifying uh, some of the new things that people are concerned about mm-hmm. with uh, uh, carrying on of the, of the civil rights struggle is... Uh, uh, there's just a lot of hypocrisy there. Yeah. So, you know, I do want to name the fact that you write very seriously about um, the potential downside side to civility or civility superficially imagined, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, relativism is not... Um, relativism or some kind of superficial idea of accepting and affirming everything... That, yeah. that that's not where you want to go with this. That's not where you think right. it's good for us, even as a culture, to go, even when we hold different views about the territory we're navigating. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you think, like, where, where, does, where does the example of Jesus come in? I mean, how do, you, how do you think of Jesus in terms of uh, avoiding relativism while, while being civil, while being there for others? How do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, I, I do think that Jesus is a model of civility, of convicted civility. I mean, he, uh, you know, the murmuring against him that we read about in the gospel accounts is that this is a person who associates with harlots and with uh, corrupt tax collectors and, you know, other, other quote-unquote sinners mm-hmm. in, in the culture. And yet it's very clear that Jesus did not approve of... Uh, prostitution or of uh, uh, compliance with the economic uh, practices of the Roman Empire, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a clear case where Jesus reached out to people, uh, but in none of that was he, uh, was he sacrificing uh, convictions about what is right, what is good, what is true. I mean, I, and, and uh, some of his... Uh, harshest uh, judgments were for uh, people who uh, were very condemnatory toward uh, other people and not aware of their own sin, not aware of their own shortcomings. He (laughs) he wasn't afraid to call Pharisees, uh, you know, whited sepulchers, which was quite quite an insult. Yeah. Right. In one of your, in some of your, I want to talk as we move forward about some of the descriptions and prescriptions you have in in your book for a gentler Christianity. And one of them is, for starters, concentrate on your own sinfulness and the other person's humanness. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, I I get that from John Calvin, <laughs> uh, who probably a lot of people, if they know anything about the great 16th century reformer, or have at least heard about something about Calvinism. Do not think of uh, <coughs> Calvin or Calvinism as uh, a model of civility. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Calvin said that uh, a, 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 a political leader who's thinking about going to war, 
uh, and he was not a pacifist, and so he would say, you know, sometimes we do need to go to war. But before we go to war, he said, we, we need to go through two exercises. And the one is to uh, test out our own motives, to make sure that we're not being carried away by some uh, you know, evil motive in ourselves, like a, just a desire to grab land or, or an un, a, a kind of uncontrollable anger or spirit of vengeance. And then he says, and we also have to reflect on the humanity of the other person. And uh, what I've taken out of that is that Calvin is saying, uh, uh, say when, I, when a George Bush or uh, uh, President Obama uh, thinks about uh, going to war, uh, they, they ought to, first of all, test their own motives. And secondly, they ought to think about the humanity of the people against whom they're going to be waging warfare. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of what I call a hermeneutic of uh, suspicion toward yourself and charity toward others. Mm-hmm. And it may very well be that after you've spent all that time thinking about Saddam Hussein and thinking about your own motives, that you, you do decide that you should go to war. Uh, certainly in the case of a Hitler and others, I, I think we, you know, we can understand that. Uh, but a lot of, uh, of, of, of unjust wars or unwise military operations could be avoided if we took that kind of advice. And, and I think that's true of our relationship with uh, just other people uh, right. as well. Because it, it yeah. feels like when we talk about the culture war these last years, and that's, you know, that's not a bad analogy. And here's, here's something that... Um, feels important to me to name that uh, this process of self-examination that you're talking about, we, we, we also, we have a culture of fear, right? I mean, and yeah. if you watch these rallies and you, you hear what people say, and if you, if you look behind uh, the kind of, e- even if you try to look behind the human, the human... Um, What's, I don't want to use the word, the, 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 the kind of distorted urgency that's behind, you know, something like burning Qurans. What yeah. you see is this, is this fearfulness, right? Yeah. And we know that when human beings, as, as creatures, uh, I mean, we know this from brain science now, you know, that when we're acting out of fear, we are, we are not, people are not probably capable of asking those self-aware questions that you just posed, even if they are deeply religious and believe themselves mm-hmm. to be acting Mm-hmm. In a Christian way, so how do you, you know what? How can I mean, and how do a Christian leaders like you and and people at at Fuller Seminary, how does theology respond both to you know maybe to that fear in order to make that other kind of self awareness possible? Yeah, that's interesting because I've been talking to some of my friends about uh, you know some of this stuff recently, and I, I've got to say to you, Chris, that you know when. When, when I talk to people who uh, really like Glenn Beck, and uh, in my part of the world, I, I run into a lot of folks like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to be honest with you and say, one thing I can say to them is, you know, some of the things he's concerned about, I'm concerned about too. Yeah. Uh, I do worry about what's happening in our culture. Uh, I do worry about the... Uh, the ongoing, uh, I think, very bad effects of the sexual revolution about a lot of the stuff that uh, we see on television and in film and uh, in, the, in the kinds of uh, 
things that are shaping uh, our young people uh, in in music and, and other forms of culture. So I worry about that stuff. And I do worry about it. Anything goes, you know, all religions are are of equal value and, and all the rest. So, and, and I think it's important to um, not just to say to people, oh, you're all wrong and, and you shouldn't be carried away like that, but to say, uh, I share a lot of those concerns mm-hmm. and what are we going to do about that? And uh, we have to be very careful uh, that we not sin in the process of uh, expressing and acting upon uh, those concerns. And so... Uh, you know, I'm pretty conservative about about a lot of these these issues, and I think it's uh, it's very important uh, for a leader uh, to uh, approach people who are having a hard time controlling their fears. Uh, first of all, to identify to the degree that we can with integrity, to identify with those fears. And uh, I mean, it's sort of what you, you know, all of us who've been through therapy and all the rest, you know, the, the therapist doesn't say, well, that's a stupid way to feel. Right. You, you know? tell somebody who's afraid how stupid they are and you back them into a corner. And, and I feel like that's that's one of the dynamics of our political life now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of this incivility. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's important for us to uh, uh empathetically approach the people that we're trying to influence and trying to serve and uh, try to point up to a better way of dealing with, with those issues and, and, and at the same time a more truthful assessment uh, of, of the issues because uh, it's so easy when you're afraid to kind of uh, create a, an enemy that may not be the enemy that you, you think the person is. So so I guess I'm curious, is there, you know, what, let's say this, what, what gets onto the radar, what makes it into the news are the very extreme moments and the extreme yeah. st- strident statements and the little yeah. church in Florida that's burning Qurans. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, though, are there discussions happening in the larger universe of evangelicalism and, and, and charismatic Christianity, which is also represented at Fuller. I mean, you have a lot of denominations at Fuller, and yeah. you, have, you have a conservative liberal span as well. So are, is there soul-searching, is there leadership of the kind you talked about um, happening that's, that's not making the news that, that, that the outside world is not privy to? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, what I'm experiencing with the younger generation of students at Fuller, and I also— you know, travel to a lot of uh, uh, evangelical college campuses is that there's a younger generation coming up right now that uh, is embarrassed by the image of evangelicalism as uh, an intolerant, uh, mean-spirited. Uh, there have even been some Barna surveys that have uh, put some numbers on this, you know, that they're, they're younger people. And if you take something like sexuality, for example, and the whole all the debates over same-sex relations, I mean, a lot of uh, younger evangelicals um, who may very well agree with uh, the basic theology and the kind of understanding of biblical teaching that many of us have, uh, you know, they got sisters who are lesbians, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to high school with kids who came out of the closet, and. Uh, they just see this in much more relational terms, and uh, the blanket 
angry, uh, judgmental uh, caricaturing of the gay lesbian community just doesn't it just doesn't fit uh, their sense of, uh, of of who these folks are. And uh, it doesn't mean that there are different convictions, but it does mean that they, they interpret the overall reality in very different terms. And so I think there's a good, uh, a good dialogue going on in the younger generation uh, of people who are, are wanting to uh, think differently, and especially when we have an opportunity in classrooms, uh, at colleges and seminaries to uh, uh, kind of sit back and, and uh, talk about these things. I mean, there, there's something wonderful about the, the gift of leisure in uh, higher education, that we mm. can actually sit back in a classroom, have people read things, uh, expose them to different points of view, and then really try to work through what a sensible assessment of all of us really, really comes to. And then I, I mean, I suppose you, I mean, you are training people who are going to be out and in churches, I mean, who won't, who, who yep. will take that, the, the, yep. the fruits of that leisure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can learn a lot from, from the past. I mean, you know, you and I both knew a world, uh, an American culture that was, uh, very racist, uh, very mm. segregated. Uh, you don't have as strong memories of that as I do, but uh, it, it was really time. there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of our friends and loved ones, uh, you know, we were in the, among the sort of in the intellectual community where uh, we were socialized to be sensitive to this kind of thing. And then we'd, we'd go home to family and friends and they didn't quite get it, many of them. And, uh, and yet today there are significant changes in uh, attitudes within those subcultures. And um, I think a lot of it had to do with, with patient people in pulpits and in teaching roles and other kinds of leadership positions who were willing to uh, uh, not just angrily denounce, uh, but uh, try to tell the stories and... Uh, and probe some of the spiritual concerns that were at stake. And I think we need to be doing that today on many of the things you and I are talking about here. One of the things you talk about in your book on civility, Uncommon Decency, is about serving a slow God. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what, so I think that's, you know, in terms of what you just said, talk to me about that relationship with civility. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it really has. It's really a way of getting at the issue of patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, there's a tendency to want to solve this thing, and indeed to identify an enemy and think that we can go into battle and just wipe the enemy out is uh, uh, a manifestation of a kind of impatience. Uh, and I think the uh, that that idea of a slow god came originally came to me when. Uh, we were talking with uh, a group of evangelicals. We were talking with a couple of Catholic friends at a conference that we're at, and kind of over dinner. And uh, we were talking about some of the issues uh, that were plaguing the evangelical community. And one of my Catholic colleagues said, uh, uh, don't they realize that God works slowly? And, and you know, Catholicism works slowly. has a much more, <laughs> it works very slowly. It has a long has a sense much, of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's uh, 
the kind of thing that uh, we need more of. Uh, just anybody who takes the Bible seriously needs to realize that, uh, you know, we're, we can't rush God's purposes. Uh, we can't bring an end to history before God is willing to do so. We can't end injustice. Uh, what God calls us to do and to be is not to change the world, but to be faithful uh, in a vision that, uh, uh, be faithful in setting forth a vision of life that opposes error and opposes uh, injustice and and all the rest, but realizing that, uh, you know, we're not, we're not messiahs and God isn't going to hold us responsible for uh, righting all the wrongs in the world. I'd, I'd like to, in that spirit, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, kind of made a list of some, again, some descriptions and prescriptions that you have. And, and, uh, and I'd like to just ask you about the biblical and theological underpinnings of these. So following on what you just said, you, you wrote, God has a gentle and reverent concern for public righteousness. So tell me where yeah. you see that. How do you how do you know that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I can. I mean, I can go write the Bible verses. You yeah. know, in, in uh, First Peter, the the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, uh, a verse that gets used all the time in, among evangelicals: "Be ready at any time." Uh, to give a reason for the hope that lies within you of anyone who asks it of you, you know. And we've always said that. You know, we've always got to be making the case. We've always got to be defending our beliefs against people who disagree with us. Um, but but we saw them go on and quote the next part of that verse, which is, and do so with gentleness and reverence. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I've often thought how different our theological and even our interreligious disagreements uh, would get played out if we constantly said to ourselves, I've got to treat the other person with gentleness and reverence. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced this in my own relations over the last decade or so with, uh, with the Mormon community. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not a generalist when it comes to other religions, but the, the three religions that I take very seriously for dialogue are Judaism, Islam, and uh, and Mormonism, mm. and that's just those are ones that I've chosen to concentrate on. But but they all have to do with uh, either groups that left us or that 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 we left, you know. And Christianity broke with Judaism, and uh, it separated, uh, stood over against, and and uh, with with Islam. And then Mormonism kind of departed from us, and right. and in each case, often with very angry, angry relations on both sides. I mean, hostile relations on both sides. And uh, so, in the case of uh, the Mormon community, I just decided that I was gonna, I was gonna listen. I was gonna ask them, "What do you really believe?" You know, and and to to try to get at. Uh, an understanding of Mormonism, which, you know, I have real disagreements with a lot of things in it, but I wanted to be sure that what I was disagreeing with was really what they they believed. And uh, there's been a tendency uh, in dealing with other religions and especially those that we're competing with as we are with Mormonism, you know, mm-hmm. they globally evangelical. evangelical. Yeah, we're all mm-hmm. we're, we're all uh, competing for converts and all this kind of thing. Right. Uh, that. Uh, that that instead of telling Mormons what they believe, that we ask them what they believe, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience for me to 
uh, realize that some of the things that I attributed to Mormonism just aren't aren't there. And uh, that's really helped me to get at uh, a better sense of where the real differences are. And I, I don't want to get into all of that here. But I do think uh, a gentle and reverent approach to people with whom we disagree is simply um, going to them and making sure that we understand them. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, I, t- I tell this story of a um, being in a parking lot. This is after I wrote the original version of my book. And uh, I, I saw a parking space in, in this mini mall, and I had to go into a grocery store. So I pulled into the parking space, and I heard somebody honking. And this woman, she, she was in a car, and, and it was obvious that she had been waiting for that space. I hadn't seen her. And she gave me the finger and you know, angry gestures and, and went on. And I got out of the car, and I thought, I'm going to find her. So I went and looked, and sure enough, I found her parking in a, a more distant place in the lot. And as she got out of the car, I just went up to her, and I said, you know, I'm, I, I took a parking place that you were waiting for, and I didn't realize it. And I just want to tell you, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I don't blame you for being angry with me. And she started to cry. And she said, you don't know what kind of day I've had. And she just stormed away. Mm-hmm. And then after a little while, just a, a few steps, she turned around with tears streaming down her face. And she said, thank you, mm-hmm. in a very gentle tone. You know? And I thought, uh, you know, I don't usually react that way, but that was a case, and I don't, I don't mean to make myself look like this wonderful person, but that was a case where I, I, I responded to somebody's anger with a gentleness and a reverence, and it paid off for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it paid I, off for her. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I just think that you know you can go through the the biblical teaching and find all sorts of ways in which uh, we, you know, G.K. Chesterton once said, you know, we, it's bad to have false gods, but it's also bad to have false devils. You know. And to demonize another person yeah. uh, without being sure that they really are worthy of demonization is a, is a terrible thing. So, you know, and again, I think a view of evangelicals that's come through, especially in American political life in recent years, has been about who they are, who and what they are opposed to, who they disagree with, right? But so here's yeah. another statement from you about just an essential Christian truth, which is... Um, in affirming the stranger, we are honoring the image of God. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, I, you know, when it, going back to that Aristotle idea that uh, you know we all understand kinship and then we understand friendship, but then there's this person who is neither kin nor friend, right. but we have encountered them. And what is it that links me to them if it isn't just a lot of good feelings that I have about about people like that? And uh, what the Bible teaches is that every human being is created in a divine image. And that this means that every human being is a, you know, and this is where, where I've been thinking more about this lately, is a work of art. Uh, and uh, seeing other people is a kind of exercise in art appreciation. You know? <laughs> okay. And I have this, this wonderful story from... Uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux, who, you know, is this uh, uh, young nun who uh, is now, uh, uh, you know, greatly admired in Catholic circles. Uh, but she she was in a convent for, you know, 
less than a decade before she died. But she uh, she wrote this wonderful journal, spiritual journal, and uh, she was very much in love with Jesus and would talk to Jesus in very intimate terms. And at one point she says, Jesus, there's this other nun in the convent. I can't stand her. Uh, and I know the devil must be at work in me on that. So I, I I realized that you created her. She's a work of art that you created. And I know every artist likes to have uh, his uh, her handiwork uh, appreciated. And so I've tried to look at her as your work of art and try to appreciate the intentions of the artist, you know. And I find that very powerful, that... Uh, I, I I come across a person who isn't just a stranger, but maybe represents a strangeness to me that uh, initially uh, might uh, I might feel very alienated from that person. And then to think uh, this is a, a a work of art by the God whom I worship. Uh, that God created that person, and uh, and it's something like art appreciation. It doesn't come easy. Uh, mm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of aesthetically deprived, and so I have to work at it. Uh, but it's a very important exercise to engage in. You have been very clear and open across the years, for example, about your uh, theological opposition to gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine um, that someone who is homosexual might hear what you just said and feel that in fact, it's, you know, that doesn't find expression when you look at them, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it should. Uh, I can't say that you know, I'm always proud of the attitudes that I have, but, um, you know, what are my stories about my own uh, uh, learnings in the area of civility was uh, going to a gay mass uh, one night at a, at a large Episcopal church and I went as a, a kind of observer. I wanted to see what this thing was all about. And they mm-hmm. were advertising that they were having a gay mass. And when I got there, the place was just packed. And I had thought I could sit in the back and kind of watch it and take notes as a reporter. <laughs> and instead, I had to go and sit uh, toward the front in the middle uh, of, of, this, of this congregation. And two powerful things happened to me that evening. And the one was um, that they... Uh, they did Psalm 139 uh, in unison at a certain point in the liturgy. And Psalm 139, this particular passage says, when, when I was in my mother's womb, you knit me together. Uh, you know my, my intimate parts, you know. Mm-hmm. And before I was even born, you knew who I was. And I started to cry. I mean, that I was surrounded by people. Uh, very different lifestyles, very different beliefs about right and wrong on certain key issues. But every one of them, God had knit together when they were in their mother's womb. And then there came a point where they had the prayers for the dead. And the priest asked that people uh, just uh, speak out a name of someone who had died of AIDS. And uh, and it was thunderous. I mean, you know, Mabel, uh, Kevin, I mean, just one after another. And I realized I was surrounded by a tremendous uh, grieving community who had been deeply, deeply wounded by by the AIDS crisis. And um, it was a powerful experience for me. Now, did I come away changing my theological, overall theological views? No. But, uh, but ever since then, I, I have really tried to emphasize the fact that, that 
even in expressing our disagreements, and this is a very complicated thing, uh, but that we're dealing with people who are precious works of divine art and that uh, we can't dehumanize them, we can't demonize them, and uh, we, we really need to begin. And this is why, you know, I have argued on a number of occasions and, and, and actually gotten some very positive response from uh, for folks in the gay lesbian community that uh, maybe I even wrote a Newsweek people yeah, piece on this. Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, maybe it's time to stop yelling at each other and, and accusing each other in public. And maybe we ought to just sit down and 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 turn the agenda into something like this, uh, where I would ask my gay and lesbian activist friends, uh, what is it about people like me that scare you so much? And that you in turn would listen to me when I say, what is it about what you are advocating that that worries me so much about the future of our culture and the world in which my grandchildren are being raised? And that we talk about hopes and fears uh, mm-hmm. rather than angrily denouncing each other as homophobes or as as uh, people who are engaged in you know uh, despicable behavior. But we just talk about our hopes and fears. Uh, could that shape a very different kind of discussion as we move toward uh, the really important question: is uh, how are we going to be able to live together in this pluralistic society? Right. Uh, with at least some better understanding of, uh, of of what motivates us beneath the angry denunciations and things. You know, I just want to read a bit of that piece you wrote in Newsweek, which you, you just summarized. But I, I, this was in Newsweek in January of 2009, and it was around the Prop 8 um, controversy. And, and California, where your base continues to be this very fraught place with uh, over the issue of gay marriage, uh, with judgments and counter-judgments and laws and counter-laws. So, so here's one of the things you wrote. Uh, you wrote, Can we talk? This is a plea to your fellow citizens on both sides of this divide over sexuality. Can we talk? I ask this as someone who has been one of the angry ones, angry about things that have been said about people like me. I've been on talk shows where people phone in to call me a fascist or equate me with those who burned accused witches at the stake. One remark that hit especially close to home was made by the editor of this magazine, Newsweek. He wrote that anyone, anyone who tries to make a scriptural case against same-sex marriage is guilty of, quote, the worst kind of fundamentalism, unquote. That hurt. I have spent several decades of my life trying to spell out an evangelical alternative to the worst kind of fundamentalism. My friends and I have argued that the Bible supports racial justice, gender equality, peacemaking, and care for the environment, views that often draw the ire of the worst kind of fundamentalists. But none of that seems to matter to folks who don't like our views about same-sex relations. And then you did end with this plea um, for people. You said, you want to hear from people who worry about your views. Why are you frightening? Um, What do you need to hear from us that would reduce your anxiety? What is your vision of a flourishing pluralistic society? So tell me, did people come back to you? Did you get that? (laughs) Did that talking start? Yeah, I got hundreds of responses, uh-huh. uh, uh, some letters, a lot of emails, a couple of angry phone calls. Um, they they divided into three groups. One was just some other cr- Christian folks who happened to disagree, who happened to agree with me, who uh, 
who and and there, there are actually a, a few of them, but you know, people saying thank you for for saying what you did. Um, I got uh, I got some very th- well. Let me just say the vast majority was angry stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and again, people who just repeated it. I mean, I got stuff uh, opening lines that I can't repeat on family radio, certainly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, there there was a lot of stuff of you know you're just you're just a, a fascist kind of a person and uh, as bad as those who you know bought and sold slaves and all the rest but i got some wonderfully uh poignant uh people who said okay you've asked for let, let me tell you my experience you know i was raised in a southern baptist home and uh at a certain point, I realized that uh, I was I was a lesbian, and uh, the cruelty that they had experienced uh, it was uh, it, I, it was it was very gratifying that some people really took me up on it, and um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to respond because I got I really did get hundreds of of responses. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, I wonder if that experience of going through that, of writing this piece, of the responses you got, and and everything else you've you know you have been out there talking about civility for a long time, and you're out there talking about it again. I mean, do you feel do you get hopeful or do you feel more despairing? Oh, I, you know, the part of it, Chris, is just that there are a lot of crazies out there. I mean, it, it it's amazing when you you write something like that, the 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 venom that you experience and and people who really did not attend to what you were really saying yeah. you know they they get to triggers certain things and they just go off but i'm i i, I tend to take that yeah that's going to happen take that for granted but i'm gratified by uh i think uh a growing uh yeah sure minority uh segment of uh of the christian subculture uh, on the more conservative side of the of the spectrum of people who are 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 really willing to to think uh, some new thoughts about how, how we deal with people, how we relate to people uh, with whom we we disagree, and uh, I think some of it has to do with just the telling of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a uh, I, I spoke to a group of more conservative people in a mainline denomination and we were you know they, they they know that I'm on the same side they are in terms of ordination questions and uh, performing of same-sex uh, civil unions and marriages and, and the like and uh, this couple came up to me afterward and thanked me and you know what's happening to our denomination and the like and, and I, I finally just felt I had to say something to them and I said you know at the same time we need to deal with this in new ways I mean there's just a lot of folks out there who are, are really being hurt by the the angrier things. And all of a sudden, she started to cry. Hmm. And they looked at each other, and it was like they gave each other permission. And then they said to me, our son is gay. And uh, uh, recently, he came home with his partner, and uh, we just decided that uh, we want to stay related to our son. And that meant that we had to accept uh, the two of them into our home and they actually agreed to go to church with us on Sunday. And uh, at the end of the service, they said, we're glad we were, we were, we were with you today. And they said, you know, uh, we, we, we realize that we need to 
uh, think some new thoughts and do some new things mm. on this. And, and I think so much of this is is probing beneath the surface of some of the rhetoric and getting right. at some of the the hopes and fears. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probing beneath what what captures the headlines and yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there are a lot of people out there right now who are just trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this uh, pastorally, in family relations, uh, friendships. And um, it's not enough just to be standing on street corners holding up angry signs. It's not enough. It's even wrong to be (laughs) standing on street corners and holding up angry signs. Nor is it very helpful when people... uh, who disagree with way more conservative types uh, simply constantly yell at us that we're homophobes and fascists. Right. You know, one thing you wrote is <clears throat> being civil isn't just trying to be respectful toward the people we know. It is also to care about our common life. And, you know, that might seem like a really simple sentence, but those words, our common life, which you italicize, <laughs> jump out at me. Um, because that phrase is has almost become foreign in in, yeah. a, in American cultural discourse. Yeah, yeah, isn't it amazing? I mean, my my Catholic scholar friends have uh, some of them have written on the whole idea of the common good, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a biblical idea. I mean, going back to that Jeremiah passage, you know, seek the welfare, the shalom of the of the city in which I've placed you. And uh, we ought to be, and then when we think of a common life, you know, mm-hmm. that the fact that our kids are going to school together, that uh, we are in the same parking lots, we are in the same supermarket aisles, we're driving the same freeways, uh, we're attending the same uh, churches and synagogues and mosques and, and, and all the rest, then that there's a common life that, uh, and it's not just a, a, a a political bond, but that beneath mm. all of that, there's something that that binds human beings together that politics can't create and it shouldn't be able to destroy. And uh, that we really need to be thinking as uh, people of faith, uh, how is it that our common life can, can flourish? And uh, uh, even if it isn't going to be perfect and it isn't going to fit all of our convictions, uh, how can we have a, a flourishing common life together? So, I, you know, yeah. we, we live in Pasadena or Fuller Seminaries in Pasadena, California, and yeah. every year we go take a group of guests to the uh, uh, Rose Parade, and uh, that's such a, an inspiring experience. I'm, I'm not a parade person <laughs> that much, but what kind of surprise you say that? Yeah, but the <laughs> but the spirit of the crowd, uh, you know, people have. Some of them been there all night, and uh, just the the goodwill and the the I don't know. It's just a marvelous thing, and and you get a sense there of a common life, of a civic culture that uh, we ought to want that to flourish. And here's I think one of the things that's come to concern me uh, as much as anything else is in in these. These uh, examples of incivility, that these specters of incivility that have emerged in these last couple of years, is that there is such an abyss of knowing, of, of relationship or communication between the people who believe one thing or the, and the people who believe the other, right? Whether it's about yeah. the, who Barack Obama is, to who Muslims are, <laughs> to 
uh, same-sex marriage, it, it's almost like we, we more and more inhabit parallel universes. Uh, yeah. And which makes that common life feel la- feel more out of reach. I mean, you know, something that grabbed me was reading your blog, um, and somebody who had responded to something you wrote about Glenn Beck. And here's what he said: I listen regularly regularly to Beck five to eight hours a week because he is the most dangerous man in America right now. Even though I agree with eighty percent of what he says, that's mm-hmm. how deception works. He says it ain't deception if it ain't sed- seductive, but. Most people who disagree with Glenn Beck are not listening to anything he says, right? No, so, that's right. I mean, that's that, right. that, that, no, but so you, I wonder what you can tell all the rest of us from this place you inhabit where, you know, you, you have somebody who listens to, considers Glenn Beck to be the most dangerous person in the world and it agrees with 80% of what he says. So, so is there navigation that's going on that the rest of us can't see if you just have this kind of, if you look, have this macro or journalistic view of, of our division? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Chris, I don't want to answer the wrong question. I'm not quite sure what you're asking me. Yeah, I'm. I guess so. A common life, the 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 fact that that feels more and more out of reach because you know, even if, if people weren't uh, that that we weren't good at debating things or resolving them ten year, years ago, it feels like there's even less. There's less of a shared reality. Yeah. On these really yeah. hard things and really essential things that we have to talk about, like the definition of marriage or how do we inhabit the world with Muslims, right? Yeah. So I wonder if you have any um, perspective that might be that might bridge some of that from a place yeah. like Fuller, where in fact you do have um, people who span some of these 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 big gaps. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I you know I have the privilege of uh, being involved in the you know the largest graduate theological school in the world and we have people from 60 70 nations at any given time and many different denominations uh bound together by an evangelical faith but for all of that a lot of diversity mm-hmm. and uh, you know one of the blessings of that is that uh, we we learn to live with uh, at least a certain kind of diversity within the evangelical world and uh, I think more and more we're committed to bringing people in. Uh, we're doing rabbi uh, dialogues, uh, evangelical Jewish dialogues. We're bringing Mormon uh, scholars onto campus for dialogue. We uh, have common projects with, uh, with Muslims and, and others. Uh, and I think it's so important to create uh, these kinds of spaces. My my good friend Bob Millett, who you've had on, who's a leading Mormon mm-hmm. uh, scholar from Brigham Young, uh, when we first started our dialogues, um, he I had him come and speak to our board of trustees at Fuller Seminary because they were wondering what's Mao into, you know, do, in, into this Mormon dialogue kind of thing. And Bob Millett said this. He said, you know, we Mormons have been basically out of contact with historic Christianity for 150 years. We're not even sure that we're using the right terminology. And he said, we're not trying to convert anybody at Fuller. You know, what we want is a safe place to ask questions mm. and to try to clarify things. And 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 more and more, that idea of a safe place uh, I find that's what I'm talking about, say, with my gay and lesbian friends um, with whom, you know, I may disagree about a lot of things. But can we can we find a place to talk together that's a safe place where I, I don't I, we don't have to yell at each other. 
we don't have to worry about who's who, who's going to write this up and and uh, or televise this, but that we can just talk together about uh, the hopes and fears. I keep going back to that because yeah. I love that line in the Christmas Carol. You know, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, <laughs> and uh, I think that's a fundamental spiritual reality that. Uh, what the gospel is all about is addressing uh, and bringing healing to our deepest hopes and fears. And uh, I'm convinced that focusing on hopes and fears is an important part of it. But we need safe places. And the problem is there aren't safe places anymore today. People in Congress have told me, you know, the the, the locker room, <laughs> uh, the coat room used to be the safe place, mm-hmm. you know, where a Republican and a Democratic senator could uh, – say, you know, you made that speech out there, but let's talk about it here. And they would come out of the coat room uh, with some kind of uh, better understanding of each other. And and now it's as if they can't talk to each other in, in, in any kind of safe place. And so it's all public, public rhetorical exchanges that uh, uh, where they're accountable to a constituency that's going to read about what they've said. And uh, uh, there's something to be said for the the old idea of the smoke-filled room, you know, where people right. got out of the spotlight and just talked to each other and made uh, negotiated things. Uh, and if we could do that with a kind of therapeutic sensitivities and pastoral sensitivities, I think it's a good thing. I kind of hear you hearkening back to these notions, to the virtues of patience and slowness. And, and even if you dwell on hopes and fears, I mean, hopes and fears don't have quick fixes, Right. No, no. I mean, if we let those into the room, um, then everything may take longer, although hopefully we actually get to a place where where a common life benefits, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and the the woman in the parking lot who gave me the finger. Yeah. uh, and, and, And then she says to me when I approach her, if only you knew what kind of day I've had, you know? And she's telling me something there. And mm-hmm. I don't have to hear her out on that. I, all I know is that that was a, what I first thought was this, this, this terribly you know, bold and angry person uh, who was really attacking me uh, uh, was a hurting person. Yeah. And I don't want to say that's the answer to everything. You know, I'm not going to go to a Nazi and say, you know what? You know what? Tell me about your hurts and like I, but but for a good part of life, we're dealing with human beings just like ourselves, um, and it's so important to focus on uh, and and to be patient with each other, uh, even if it's the patience of saying, "I'm going to walk across this parking lot and talk to that person and just find out and and just tell them I'm sorry." So, you know, one thing that you're you know, you're refusing to tell me that there's there's a thriving evangelical conversation just below the surface that's going to solve everything. But what what you're pointing at, what you're pointing at is that some of these, maybe this rut we've gotten ourselves into public life or political life writ large, maybe there's not going to be some macro fix for that. But that yeah. creating safe places wherever we are, creating relationships wherever we are, um... It is the recourse we have to some of this public incivility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I want to say, I, I see the seminary where I work and have a pretty influential leadership position in 
as that kind of safe place. And, you know, just before I, I started, you know, this conversation with you, I met with a, a, a member of our faculty who said to me, and, and it's very interesting as this happened today, you know, said to me, uh, well, you know, following on your idea of convicted civility, uh, and, and this idea has taken uh, in our institutional culture. The convicted at, civility. At, yeah, I've seen yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I really do think that uh, uh, for some reason we have been able to create a community that has taken this kind of thing as uh, that's the kind of evangelicals we want to be. And people who aren't uh, interested in that kind of evangelicalism uh, probably not going to be very happy at Fuller Seminary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, that's just one way of uh, of thinking about where we can create safe spaces. But I, I've got to say, I've taken a lot. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, I'm no martyr and I haven't suffered. But, you know, I've taken a lot of flack for some of the things that I've done <laughs> along these lines. But um, I think I haven't taken a lot of flack internally. I've taken a lot of flack from people outside. And uh, I think our own community uh, – has been emboldened, and uh, it's like the the president is saying, "Hey, it's okay to be working on this. It's okay to be cultivating this kind of spirit." Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, I, I do think. And I, again, I'm not setting myself up as an example, but I think if more people who have influence and leadership positions in uh, uh, other places uh, of, of of influence. Uh, can can kind of give their blessing to this and actually encourage it. I think this could be a very important. I'm 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 really uh, quite apart from selling my books. Uh, I'm I'm really encouraged by the fact that my book on civility is required reading in a lot of evangelical liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there are a number of colleges that require it as the first book that freshmen read you know, when they come in. Interesting. And, uh, so that uh, – and there are other wonderful things like that. It's not just me. But to set the tone for, say, liberal arts education, for uh, congregational life uh, uh, with these kinds of themes, mm-hmm. I think there's hope for that. One of the things um, you brought into your discussion in this updated, revised version of Uncommon Decency about Christian civility in, un- in an uncivil world between the late 80s and now, or early 1990 and now, is the notion of um, the encounter with Islam in American culture and you know, globalization and the whole notion of how religious pluralism is so much more vast and so much more real and central. Um, yep. And I, you know, and it's a good, pl- it's a good place to talk about how the ground you're navigating, because um, you know, you you also write a, say things like there are boundaries around Christian openness to be changed by others. So I mean, there's a dance here, um, but I feel like you're taking up the fact that religious pluralism is a, has become a matter for Christian theology. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and once again. Um, the danger is uh, relativism, you know, that, uh, that we, we not only uh, live with the plurality of perspectives, but that somehow we, we, we navigate that plurality, that, that, that religious pluralism by saying, well, you know, we, we all have – all views are, are of equal value. 
Uh, and on the other extreme, uh, that we fight it, that we we say, you know, there's only one. Uh, we've got the truth, and uh, we can't tolerate alternatives. And uh, somehow we've got to find our way uh, between those and, and even see it as a God-given opportunity uh, to... Um, you know, to live out a different way of life. You know, it's very interesting that uh, many of the people these days who are deeply concerned about the fact that there's a lot of pluralism uh, from a religious perspective are, are sort of hostile to that idea. And they seem to think that Christianity flourishes uh, where it's the kind of controlling uh, monolithic <laughs> uh, definer of the ethos. And yet, uh, I, you know what I, I say to a lot of people, uh, in my talks, uh, you know, things are really bad today. I mean, they're so bad. You want to know how bad it is? It's as bad as the time of the New Testament. <laughs> and uh, and that was the time in which Christianity went from a very small band of disciples uh, to, uh, to tremendous growth. And it was really uh, sensing uh, a pluralistic environment, uh, uh, a Christian community that saw itself as uh, in a in a hostile hostile environment, and yet that's the time when the growth of the church occurred. And uh, uh, I think we can take heart from the fact that, uh, in many ways, uh, we're living in a world now that is much like the some of the best years of Christianity in the past. Mm. I just I just want to keep you a couple more minutes, so I got a couple more questions. Um, okay, so just. Following on that, though, I know that you, I think you and I have talked before, and many of the conversations I have are about the paradox, in fact, of ecumenical and interfaith encounter, in that when real dialogue happens, um, and I know this is a quality in a lot of the dialogues you've been involved in, it's not an either-or, right? It, I mean, yeah. the, being changed by others, as you, you know, this line, there are boundaries around Christian openness to be changed by others. But, but that change is often not just a new understanding of the other, but a deepening of one's own virtues yeah. and convictions. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's well, in you know. the category of mystery as much as it's in the category of meeting the stranger. Well, here's where I'd love to interview you, Krista, because uh, things that I've heard about you and having followed your wonderful career in public radio with what you've done with uh, just bringing these kinds of conversations into public radio, uh, I sense that you're telling me your own story there, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the overall plot line. No, huh? I, I do want uh, to tell you a story, though, because I think it, it illustrates civility. I, I just think you'll like this story. I want to share it with you. I don't know if we'll put it on the air or not, but it's very moving to me. And in this category of that we have to create safe spaces wherever we are rather than wait for the system to change, I got this letter a couple years ago from a Southern Baptist minister in the Deep South who sent me a book he had written for children to, to introduce Islam, the religion of Islam. And he'd written this book because he was so distressed by the hatred that he saw, that he heard uh, coming out of Christians about Muslims after September yeah. 11th. And he mm. said, that is not a Christian response, mm. that hatred. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist, 
And and I haven't, you know, the, this pastor, his theology very well still tells him that Muslims are, you know, are not going to heaven, right? Or some yeah. some verse, some way that he might say it that way. But I thought making that distinction, I mean, he can live with that theology, and that doesn't rule out uh, this not just civil but very compassionate response of, you know, helping Christian children honor Muslims. Um, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Boy, thank God for that. Huh? That's uh, we need more people like that pastor, too. because you know that his theology on heaven and hell and all the rest is probably yeah. not a lot different than mine. But uh, and 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 uh, you know there is just such a strong tendency that uh, if we can't count them in, if we can't say, well, we were the same God and we're all going to the same place, right. which you know, however else you nuance this. Um, I think it's bad theology. Uh, that if you can't say that, then uh, uh, you know why should we? Why should we be nicer to people than God is ultimately going to be nice to them? You know, yeah. with uh, with uh, keeping them out of heaven and and the like. Right. And I just I just think that we have to we have to bracket those kinds of issues. Um, I. Uh, and and live with more mystery on that. You know, I did a thing on CNN a couple of years ago where they interviewed me for about an hour and a half on evangelicalism. They had a special that they did. And then uh, when it came, to, you know, I got on for a few minutes in the actual ver- one-hour program that they ran, and uh, they they pitted me. You, you may not want to put this on here, either, <laughs> but they, they, they paired me with a Southern Baptist Eight-year-old Southern Baptist homeschooled girl, um, and uh, you know they went back and forth. I mean, I, I didn't meet her or anything, yeah. but and they would ask her a question: uh, uh, "Is Jesus the only way to heaven?" And she would say yes. And then they turn to me, uh, you know, yeah. "Is Jesus the only way to heaven?" I'd say yes. And then they'd go back to her and says, "Well, what happens to all the people who don't believe in Jesus?" And she's with a big grin on her face. This poor kid, but. Big grin on her face. She says, they go to hell. And then they turn to me, you know, and I said, you know, uh, I, I don't believe everybody's going to get in, but I live with a lot of mystery on how Jesus actually gets a hold of people. And, <laughs> you know, I, that's the way I've got to leave it. And uh, uh, I just uh, I just not going to make those kinds of judgments. I mean, mm-hmm. if you really and, and is that a lack of conviction? Heck no. I mean, yeah. if you really believe that God alone uh, can judge the human heart and that God alone will decide the eternal destiny of people, then we are not in the business of deciding that somebody there is uh, is not going to make it, you know. Yeah. And uh, we just need to but, – but even that – even reasoning that way isn't the right way to go. Because the fact is that God did create that person. That person is a valued work of divine art, and uh, quite apart from eternal destiny and all the rest, we we need to uh, treat that person with uh, with the dignity that they deserve as creatures of God. You know, in in the context of talking about civility, you 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 decry the kind of Christian triumphalism that 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 colors the way. Um, Christians um, sometimes deal with people in our public life, but you use the language of Christ's cosmic lordship. So I wonder how you would describe. Now that might sound alarming to someone too, but what do you, 
How does that make a difference for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, Christ is the Lord of all things. One of my favorite theologians, uh, you know, actually my theological hero, the great Dutch theologian who was also prime minister of the Netherlands for a while in the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, uh, this belongs to me. And uh, I like that. Uh, but but it's also dangerous because yeah, there's Yeah, it sounds scary to a then, lot of people. Yeah. Uh, hey, it all belongs to Jesus. Let's go out and conquer those square inches for Jesus. And, you know, that's the crusade. Right, uh, right. Uh, let's take... Let's let's take the territory back for Jesus. Uh, and what, what I would rather say is that if he is the one who rules over all of the square inches of creation, then uh, those uh, Muslim women uh, who are so oppressed by uh, governments that stone women to death for what are, for many of us, very minor, very minor issues— uh, that Jesus grieves with them, that Jesus is there with them, that Jesus grieves with those who are victims of racism and economic injustice and all the rest. So that uh, we need to see his cosmic lordship as uh, the one who calls us to go out to all areas of reality uh, and identify with the things that he deeply cares about. And that means that we identify with suffering, that we identify with the desecration of the natural order and uh, many, many other things. So I would rather take that idea of cosmic lordship as a call to a God who rules, uh, from a God who rules over everything for us to go out and do his will and identify with the things that that God identifies with. And a lot of that is just suffering, suffering people. Okay. All right. (laughs) Anything else you want to say? Anything else you want no, to say? No, gee. Okay, I'm, sorry, I took you through yeah. the ringer. But you know what we do no, now is great. we put the unedited interview out, and there are a lot of people who will just listen to this whole hour and a half, yeah. and then we turn it into the radio show, and we will yeah. um, we'll let you know all the details when this is happening, and I think if yeah. we can send you questions by email if there's anything that comes up. But sure. so great to talk to you, and I, I hope to see you in person again one of these days, too. Yeah, hey, you're terrific. I, I really appreciate this, and it's been enjoyable. Thank you. Know? you. Yeah, it has. Hey. And it's and important. It's such an important subject. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You're, you, uh, you're good. <laughs> you raise good questions. And you keep <laughs> yeah. the conversation going. So. Thank hey, you. Right. straight you, to you. You yeah. take care. Yeah, hey, you bye. too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, SCPR.